Miss Havisham, written by Jean Fairburn and narrated and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Mouldering mounds of mouse droppings decorate the remnants of her wedding cake. A four-tier tower of marzipan and sugar paste, burnt-out candles, dried-up flowers, or laid waste. Compressed cobwebs spun into ropes like washing lines strung across a table stained by dried puddles of festive wine. There, Miss Havisham sits in the rags of her wedding dress. Jilted, a victim of her lover's crime, she seeks redress. But, tick, tock, her life has stopped with all her clocks as they struck the time at 20 minutes to nine. Cracked plates and coal blackened fire grates, tarnished silver framing broken mirrors, faded curtains in crimson velvet with silken linings, providing rats fine dining. Wasting body and sunken cheeks betray the corpse who lives beneath. The mendacious, menacing manipulation of men is the sum of Miss Havisham's expectations. A revelation, as possessing the means she could have been a benefactress for Pip, a benevolent parent to Estelle. Instead, she groomed the girl to act her revenge, to break men's hearts, pretending them to befriend. She, being taught that love and affection were no more than malevolent misinformation, displaying a vulnerability in need of protection. Miss Havisham, confronted by an angry Pip, stood too near her open fire and tripped. Falling into the flames, her dress caught fire. She, alas, burned like a witch on a funeral pyre. Said she was sorry to have misled him all the same, admitting she was solely to blame, and glad he came. Clockwinder's Daughter, written by Alice Golding and narrated by Sue Rodwell-Smith. village of Tannenbaum in the Black Forest was surrounded by old pine trees, tall, stately, with thick bark and straggly branches. The houses were small, wooden framed and single storey, each painted in bright garish colours. The shutters were left open and the windows were large, inviting you to look inside. The tiled roofs sloped down deeply on either side of the front façade, with the chimney erupting through the middle. Every living room was different. 
each piece of furniture carefully crafted from the trees that surrounded the village and painted in various designs from nature. Wildflowers, leaves, exotic birds and forest animals. Others reference runes, their meanings long forgotten, as were the clocks that ticked quietly, marking time. There was no road to Tannenbaum. It was isolated from the outside world and had been for centuries. The residents went about their daily tasks with clockwork precision, as they had always done, although these days they were slow to finish. Every morning, the clockwinder's daughter, Rini, would wake her father. Love you, Rini. Love you too, father. Rest, I'll wind the clocks today. If I do not move, these old joints of mine will turn to rust and I will never move again. She would smile and say, Walk with me then, father. Not today, perhaps tomorrow. Then he would kiss her and wave her off. She would pick up his bag of tools and set about winding all the village clocks. She would start on the opposite side of the street, knocking on every door, turning the key to tighten the spring that set the clocks in motion. She did this in each household until she had rewound them all. These days, the number of houses with working clocks had diminished. Instead of working from dawn to dusk, as her father had done for many long years, she would complete all his tasks in no time at all. The clockmaker had tried to pass on his knowledge to the clockwinder, but he did not understand his teachings and he had never mastered the intricate and complex procedures for making replacement parts and fitting them. After the clockmaker died, time marched on, but the clocks got slower and no matter how many times the clockwinder wound them, eventually they stopped ticking and there was nothing the clockwinder could do to make them start again. His daughter was equally baffled, but she followed in her father's footsteps, keeping the clocks going. Her father often told Rini how proud he was of her. You are beautiful, exquisite, but that is not why I am proud of you. You are kind and thoughtful, and you look after your father and everyone in this village with love and care. The clockmaker put his soul into you, Rini. The clockmaker was an artist, but he had died alone. People stopped coming to visit the village of Tannenbaum, and it broke his heart. The clockwinder had kept his creations alive for centuries. Today, he had run out of time. Rini tried to wake him, but she could only turn the key once. Father, why do you not wake? I am worn out, Rini. We have no replacement parts. Yesterday, I could not wind the clocks. Everyone in the village had stopped. I'm scared, Father. What will happen to me? In time, you will stop too. Perhaps one day, a new clockmaker will come to our village and mend the clocks. What a day that will be. Our friends will live again. 
Oh, father, do you really think so? Her father nodded, but his head slumped forward and did not rise again. Rini tried to turn his key, but it was stuck. Father! But there was no answer. He sat on his chair, inert and lifeless. She could not wind him up. He was the clockwinder, but he had stopped and would wind no more clocks today or any other day. She sat beside him and waited until her cogs and wheels slowed. She hoped her father was right. Perhaps one day the village would be found and a new clockmaker would come and mend the village clocks. That would be a day to celebrate when all the automatons would perform their tasks in the windows of their houses once more for all the world to see. That was why they were created for one glorious day long ago when the king came to their village and clapped for joy as he walked gazing in awe at her friends. It was her last thought as her wheels and cogs slowed and she paused, waiting for a new clockwinder to turn the key, so she and the village of clockwork people could live again. There was no road to Tannenbaum. It was isolated from the outside world and had been for centuries. The automatons no longer went about their daily tasks with clockwork position, as the clockwinder's daughter had stopped. Good evening and welcome to A Story at Midnight. The tale you're about to hear is called Deadly. It was written by Isabel Cook and is narrated by Roger Ems. If you're a little squeamish about spiders, I suggest you don't hear this story. Do enjoy and sleep well. Deadly by Isabel Cook Ryan Oswald descended the steps that led to the old house's cellar. He turned the large ornate key in the lock and entered the dimly lit space. Ryan was a collector of spiders. This room had almost all known species. There was one that was not known to the scientific world and this was the deadliest of the arachnid family. It could kill and the way it reproduced was unique amongst its species. Ryan put on his protective clothing. He was not taking any chances. He looked at the spider that he'd named the deadly web. It lay on its side and looked lifeless. He shook the glass tank. There was no response. Ryan waited, but the spider remained lifeless 
and he continued to examine his other specimens. He'd been in the cellar for about four hours and went back to look at the rigid spider still on its side. He carefully removed the lid of the tank and poked the deadly web with a chopstick he had lying around. It was difficult to hold the stick with his thick glove, so he removed it. The spider then took the opportunity for a deadly launch. Ryan was officially reported missing a week later. His work colleagues thought that he was off sick as he'd not reported into work. Sylvia Smythe called round at Ryan's home, but there was no answer. The police broke down the front door, but they found no one. His photo was circulated, but nobody came forward, except an elderly gentleman who'd been walking his dog. He'd passed Ryan on the morning of the 6th of July. The police took his statement, but were not convinced that the man had actually seen Ryan as he was visually impaired. The police, however, made house-to-house -house inquiries in the area, but no one recognised Ryan's photograph. Sylvia had taken Ryan's diary from his house when the police broke in. She was intrigued with what was written and she showed it to the police. An address was written in the sleeve, but most of the diary was in code. Sylvia had deciphered some of it. There were two words that kept cropping up, deadly web. The address, 22 Clayton Street, was investigated. The house was empty and no one found the steps leading to the cellar. The police had drawn a blank. Squatters broke into the house soon after and made themselves at home. They were a congenial group who were simply homeless. They made the empty house cosy with bits of furniture collected from grass verges or left outside houses wanting to be rid of their items. Lisa McGee painted murals on the magnolia walls. There was no graffiti. No one seemed to mind that they were there and no one bothered them except for bills that kept coming through the door. The electricity and water were eventually cut off, but the group still managed to function, unlike the spiders in the cellar. They were trapped in their glass coffins with no access to flies and beetles. One spider, however, was thriving. The squatters had lived there for almost a year when a fire broke out. A propane gas cylinder had somehow ignited. The house was declared unsafe for the squatters to return and they had to move on. One of the firemen, Richard McCormack, fell down some steps. He picked himself up but had turned his ankle when falling. He leant against the wooden door at the bottom of the steps and it slid open. His disappearance raised more questions than answers and it was assumed he'd perished in the fire. Examination of the house after investigators were satisfied with the cause of the fire did not reveal a body. Another fireman remembered seeing Richard heading towards the fire truck, but nowhere else saw him at all. They were all preoccupied with putting out the flames. Richard's phone, like Ryan's, was circulated 
but no one came forward. Richard was pronounced missing and the case was left open. Ryan had no family to look for him, but Richard did. He was not the sort of chap to go missing without cause and his colleagues and family mounted a vigorous campaign to try and find him. 22 Clayton Street had been boarded up and the search for Richard began here, where he was last seen. His young son was sure that his daddy had somehow been abducted by aliens. He was into spacemen and rockets. There were other theories, one of which was that Richard had simply abandoned his position on the fire hose because of a breakdown and walked off. His wife thought this theory feasible as Richard was undergoing counselling. He had attended a house fire recently and was unable to save three children trapped in an upstairs bedroom. Richard's wife was desperate to find him. She was sure he needed psychological intervention. Sylvia Smythe took the diary to someone who was excellent with crosswords. He began unravelling the code. The two learned more about the deadly web, which left them in a state of terror. Sylvia never did like spiders, but this one on paper was the deadliest of all the arachnids. They took their findings to the university, where a Professor Adams was intrigued by the diary as he was interested in spiders. The information on the deadly web fascinated him, but led him to be wary. How had Ryan caught such a specimen and where was it? This spider should at all costs be found and kept in a secure environment, announced Professor Adams. Both of Ryan's addresses were re-examined. Every spider was either killed or caught. Examinations proved they were just ordinary homegrown species and not ones from the tropics. 22 Clayton Street was picked over carefully. The structure was not stable. One young policewoman was walking by the back wall when she caught the glimpse of a step. Wondering where the step led, she pushed the thick foliage away and descended the steps down to the door. No one heard her scream. In the cellar, Lucy was being encased in the web her eyes aware of everything. The spider's feather-like touch brushed her cheek. The paralysis of her legs had been instantaneous so she could not run. Numbness was slowly taking hold. She could no longer feel her arms. She was terrified to look at the two bodies, their heads encased in a fine-spun cocoon. She would scream but she thought she might swallow the spider. What was this place? Why had no one found it? There were windows at the very top of the wall and daylight, although not very bright, allowed her to see in the dim light. She closed her eyes and thought of our father before she felt the spider on her eye. It began to feed. Lucy Maynard's disappearance in the same vicinity as the house at 22 Clayton Street could not be explained. No evidence of a struggle was found. Lucy, like Richard, had simply vanished. 
The authorities thought that a serial killer could be responsible. They did not link the disappearance of Richard and Lucy with Ryan. Only one other person thought that perhaps Ryan had vanished in the same way. And that person was Sylvia Smythe. Police patrols were increased and Lucy's photo was added to the missing board in the local police station. No members of the public had any reliable information about Lucy. Two women remembered seeing her at 7am and there were some crank calls. One confessing to Lucy's murder who described her as tall, blonde and beautiful. Lucy was petite, had brown hair and was round. A year passed and no sign of any of the missing persons was reported. It's the stuff of alien abduction, Sylvia said, half laughing. How can three people just vanish, said her colleague. Well, people do. It's far too common an occurrence. They usually turn up, but people do vanish, Sylvia replied. But Ryan had so much going for him. Promotion, his own laboratory. Yes, I admit I can't fathom it either. I wonder where it is. Sylvia replied, not expecting any answers. Sylvia sat in the car and looked at the bird house at 22 Clayton Street. She was sure that this is where she would find the answers. She turned the key in the ignition, but where to look, she didn't know. The ruins had been extensively searched and no clues found. The motor throbbed. She glanced down at Ryan's diary, most of which had been deciphered, although one section remained unread. She turned the ignition off and the motor stopped. Sylvia got out of the car. The authorities were still looking for the deadly spider. They'd only found one, which was a black widow brought back in someone's suitcase. Thankfully, no one was bitten and the spider was successfully detained to the relief of the owner. Sylvia stood and looked at the boarded up windows. One was loose, she could tell, as it was hanging at an angle. It didn't take much to prise it open. Sylvia was wearing a skirt, not the best of attire for a break-in. The place smelled of burnt wood and paint. The murals Lisa McGee had painted were still on the walls faded and marked where the burnt floorboards had fallen on them. They were rather good. Sylvia picked her way over the debris, wishing she was wearing flat shoes. She knew that Ryan had a deadly web somewhere and she was perspiring. She looked up. The wall didn't look right. Sylvia traced it with her hand, walking carefully along. She came to a gap which she squeezed through and wondered why no one had noticed this before. It was dark and at the end of the short corridor there was a sealed door. Sylvia couldn't open the door but she could see light coming from a tiny crack in the frame. The authorities came and examined the wall. It was cleverly constructed and appeared to be a straight wall but as Sylvia had found out it was two parallel walls one set slightly back from the other. Ryan hadn't even noticed it. 
Sylvia told the fireman to open the door carefully as she was not sure what was on the other side. They didn't heed her and crashed through the door. Henry, the tallest fireman, was greeted by a large sticky cobweb. He brushed it aside and then yelped, I've been bitten. His voice was muffled due to his mask. But another fireman, Anita, heard him. She wondered why Henry couldn't move and her eyes strayed in the direction of the three bodies. Get out, she shouted. The other two firemen backed away and the three of them shut the door. Where's Henry? One of them inquired. He's been bitten, Anita replied. Bitten? Yes, by a spider. Probably the deadly web. We can't help him now. Oh my God, seal that door. Oh, Henry, Henry, mate. Henry's voice came faintly through the door. There's a few spiders and they're climbing all over me. My, my head's covered. I can't feel my legs and my arms are numb. I can see three bodies, but I can't tell who they are. Their, their heads are cocooned in webs. Oh, tell my wife and children. Henry, Henry, Anita called, but no reply. Henry's lips had become frozen and he could only see what was being done to him. The door was sealed. No one knew of the steps leading to the other door, thankfully. That door by the steps was old and had stuck fast after Lucy Maynard had entered and it has closed, sealing itself. The firefighters were in shock. They phoned the appropriate authority who came running. Sylvia was contacted and was asked to relay everything she knew of the deadly web. The last two pages of the diary she had not managed to decipher. Sylvia was put in touch with a person who was an expert in code breaking. Ryan had devised this code himself. The code breaker, Agnes Philpot, scanned the numbers and letters. She announced that it was a pity that Ryan may be deceased as he was still officially missing. This is an excellent piece of work, Agnes told Sylvia. A very clever brain devised this. I can make out some of the letters. We'll see by the end of tomorrow what I've managed to uncover. Agnes took the diary, promising to return it, but she didn't say when. The pages explained that the spider was both male and female, a hermaphrodite. A certain cycle began every two years and eggs were laid. Only a few spiders made it to adulthood out of hundreds of eggs that were produced. They were cannibalistic. This is good news in the way for the authorities. They knew that they would only be dealing with a few spiders, but each one would be deadly. The problem was how to kill the spiders. At the present time, it wasn't possible to remove the bodies. Not only was it dangerous, but opening a door could allow a spider to escape. Sylvia, on going to work one morning, saw a house with its walls being filled with cavity insulation. Does the insulation set hard? She inquired of one of the workmen. Well, yes, was the reply. She phoned the appropriate people and plans were put into place. A hole large enough for a hose to fit through was made through the door at the end of the corridor in the house. The hose was pushed into the hole directly 
and cavity wall insulation started to fill the cellar. The bodies were left in situ. No one knew if they would ever be able to retrieve them. The four victims were slowly being covered in cream-coloured foam. The spiders climbed onto the ceiling. They too would soon be covered. The pressure of the insulation was gradually opening the door by the steps. 22 Clayton Street had become a shrine. Hundreds of flowers and messages were left by the yellow tape. The authorities were careful what they told the press. They did not want to alarm the public. They were convinced that the bodies were those of the missing persons, Ryan, Richard and Lucy, and then the unfortunate Henry. The cavity wall insulation had done its work. The cellar was sealed, the spiders on the ceiling encased as well as the bodies. The other door had blown open and foam had spilled out. At the edge of the rock-hard mixture lay what looked like a dead red spider. A stray cat wandered along by the steps and on spotting the spider patted it with its paw. The spider launched itself onto the poor cat. Edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith, the story at Midnight was brought to you by Wavelength Productions and recorded in Huntingdon, Cambridgeshire. Hello and welcome to Children's Poetry Corner on a Sunday. The poem is from Jumping Jewels Poetry and is read by Julie Stevens. Do enjoy! Lonely Spider Who would have thought, said the spider, that long legs would be scared of me, that smelly feet would scarper so quick, leaving me all alone. Who would have thought, said the spider, that the earth would tremble inside, that ten tiny toes could create such a mess, scattering my home from me. I never thought, said the spider, that one mouth could produce such a shriek, that scares the birds to the depth of sky, swallowing my playtime song. I never cried, said the spider, when no one played with me, when no one spent a minute or eight finding out what I liked. Was edited by Sue Woodwell Smith, is brought to you by Wavelengths Productions and recorded in Huntingdon, Cambridgeshire. Keep still, Alistair. Let me bathe your eye properly. Ouch! That's sting, Chantel. Oh, it's just antiseptic. I'll put some arnica on to heal the bruising. I still wish you'd go to hospital and get it checked out. I'll be fine. Stop fussing. I can't help worrying. You could have been badly hurt. I wasn't, because I can handle myself. But it's not going to happen again. How do you know? Especially as you refuse to inform the police. They won't do anything. They'll check the CCTV to see if they recognise whoever mugged you. No, Chantel. Listen to me. 
I won't get mugged again because we're leaving Huntsford as soon as we're married. We can't just walk away. Why not? Well, that's my business for a start. Serenity's doing very well. It's always about you, isn't it? I could have been killed, but that doesn't matter. It was probably just a kid from the Addington, not mafia hitmen. I didn't mean we can't leave, but I'll need time to sell up, either to Laura or someone else. Yada, yada. I don't need this. I'm going to catch last orders at the pub. Alistair, please. I didn't mean... And now, another episode of HCR 104 FM soap drama, Huntsford. Mmm. Oh, these scented candles smell gorgeous, Mole. I'm spot for choice. I can't decide which ones to buy. Perhaps that can help, Sharon. Where in your house do you plan to burn them? Mm, probably the living room and the bedroom. Hmm, for the living room, jasmine would be good. For the bedroom, I recommend lavender if you wish to sleep. And patchouli, well, if you have other things in mind. <laughs> Fat chance of that, Mole. There's no talent in Huntsford, haven't you noticed? Afternoon, ladies. Good afternoon, Judy. Sharon is lamenting the lack of suitable men in Huntsford. Yeah, yeah, you bagged the last decent bloke, Jude. It's all your fault. Perhaps I can make amends. I brought lunch for us all from Carmela's Mall, but there's plenty for three. I've got filled rolls, uh, salads and organic flapjacks. Oh, don't mind if I do. I'm not due back at Wavelengths for 20 minutes. It looks delicious. I just made a pot of herbal tea. I'll go and get it. Have a sniff at these candles, Jude. Which one do you prefer? Oh, I like the jasmine, uh, but not the patchouli. It's a bit overpowering. Here we are, ladies. Peppermint tea. Good for the digestion. Oh, thanks, Mel. Yeah, did Chantelle ever pay you for a tarot reading? She did not. Why didn't she pay you? Some people, they do not like to hear the truth. Chantelle wanted a happy reading for Alistair, but I refuse to tell people what they want to hear. Good for you, Mole. You've got to stick to your guns. Always. I stand by the insights which the tarot cards provide. Good afternoon, lads. Mario, where's Sam? Ah, uh, she's in the ladies, Matt. You can start without her. I'll fill her in later. Okay. First, I want to talk through the plan for Mabel and the Edge in 2023. Building on the success of your Christmas gigs, I've planned two longer tours. Let's see the dates. Crikey. That's a lot of gigs. How do we find enough time to work on a song for our second album? The same way all hard-working bands do, Tommy. You'll write and rehearse on the tour bus, in your hotel rooms, wherever you can. What's up, Ryan? I'm sorry, guys, but I can't do this. This constant treadmill, album, tour, album, tour, it's not for me, Matt. You better find another guitarist. I'm out. Morning, everyone. Hello, Sam. Good timing. Your esteemed lead guitarist just quit the band. You're kidding, Ryan. You can't leave us. Too right you can't. We're at a pivotal moment in the band's career. 
Mario's right. Please don't quit, mate. We need you. That's where you're wrong, Tom. Lead guitarists are ten a penny. They'll be queuing up to take your place, Ryan. You might as well leave the meeting. Fair enough. See you in Huntsford, everyone. Why didn't you try and persuade him to stay? No point, sweetheart. I've seen this coming for a while. Ryan hasn't got what it takes to make it big in the music business. Unlike you, he lacks star quality. But his guitar playing is crucial to our sound. No, it isn't. There's plenty you can play like him. It's no biggie. Another point, Mario? How many is that, Tommy? I reckon five points and three whiskey chasers. Go on, have another. No, Tom, I'm done. Sam will be back from Penis Town soon. And i got to get home. You know, I still can't believe Ryan didn't tell us. I thought he was our mate. He was. Well, he still is. He was just unhappy in the band. Don't take it personally. I can't help it, you know. He could have told us earlier on the train or whatever, instead of just coming out with it in front of Matt. Like I said before, if you know what Ryan's like, plays his cards close to his chest, mate. We're going round in circles here. Oh, you're right. I'm off home. Laters. Time, ladies and gentlemen. How come you're doing last orders, Vicky? I'm staying over. So I let the others go early as it's quiet. Oh, stick a pint in there, will you? And a whiskey chaser. thought you promised not to get wasted again. That was before Ryan quit the band out of the blue. That's no excuse. Ah, uh, you're right. It isn't. Uh, truth is, there's another reason why I drink. You going to tell me what it is? No, I can't. Fair enough. Look, you can have one last drink, provided you stay over. You're in no fit state to walk home. 